And then bless us this morning as we continue in this wonderful epistle of Romans to understand what it really means to walk in grace, uh, that we may, Lord, be benefited and blessed because we are here. And so, Lord, teach us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we've been going through the first six chapters of the book of Romans, we have been talking about this whole idea of grace, the doctrine of grace. Matter of fact, when Pastor Chuck Smith wrote his commentary on the book of Romans, he entitled the commentary, The Gospel According to Grace. And as we've been going through these chapters, we know that Paul, as he's writing at the end of his third missionary journey in the city of Corinth to the Christians there in Rome, he's inspired by the Spirit of God, and he has declared to us that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, that all of us have sinned. There's no exception that all the world stands guilty before God. And as we ended last week, the end of chapter 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. But, of course, we're not left without any hope. And we know that as we've been going through the book of Romans and, and looking and studying about the gospel, as Paul says, the theme of the book, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And we know that the solution to sin is Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose again. And our faith in Jesus Christ brings us justification. Now, in this doctrine of justification, at the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5, that that is a legal term which means being declared righteous, being justified before God. And as Paul would write in chapter 3, verse 24, that being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And of course, grace means the unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor of God. And we are justified being declared righteous freely. In other words, you cannot work for your salvation. You cannot earn it. You cannot merit it. It is the undeserving favor of God that comes as we put our faith and trust in Him. That's where we are justified, saved, declared righteous. Therefore, Paul has already written, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For the law is the knowledge of sin. The law cannot make you or me holy. It shows us that we're not holy. And so Paul is going to continue pointing to the grace of God. And you recall that he ended chapter 5 by writing that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Now that's a very wonderful verse. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. God's grace for you and for me. But there may be the reader that might think, well, if, if sin abounds, grace abounds much more. That means that I can go out and live any way that I want. I can live in sin. I can pursue sin, uh, live a life of sin. And so Paul in this section of Romans, which covers chapters 6, 7, and 8, which is very important for us to understand as believers, is concerning the doctrine of sanctification. We know that we're justified freely by His grace and faith in Jesus Christ. But now that we are believers, we are sanctified, which means we are set apart and we live in this grace. And so Paul in this section of Romans has been showing us and will continue to do so that living in God's grace does not mean that we continue in sin. He has already explained to us in the previous chapter that living in grace means that we are dead to sin. The old man has been crucified with Christ, and we now walk in a newness of life. And as the culmination is going to come in chapter 8, we walk in the Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit. He enables us to, to live a life for Him. 
And we don't have to be enslaved to sin, dominated by sin. And we're going to continue to talk about these things and this whole idea of being set apart to live for the Lord. So chapter 6, walking and living in grace means that we're dead to sin, right? Paul used the word sin some 17 times in the chapter. And as we move into chapter 7, we see Paul continuing with this whole theme of grace. Not only are we dead to sin, chapter 6, but now we are dead to the law, chapter 7. The word law is used some 23 times in the chapter. So he addresses those who are bound by sin in chapter 6. Now he addresses those who are bound by the law, chapter 7, as he exposes the weakness of the law. Let's begin to read as we read in verse 1, that, or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband, verse 3, so then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. So Paul has written in the previous chapter, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for we're not under the law, but we are under grace. And Paul begins to make his point that we are dead to the law. He uses, in the beginning of this chapter, the illustration of marriage. He uses an example out of the law to show that the law has power over a person as long as they are living, as he used the example of marriage. As two people are married together, that they are bound to each other, but death ends that obligation. And Paul just simply stating in this example that death of a husband frees the woman to marry another. And if she does marry another, she's not an adulteress. She, she um, is free to marry another. Uh, if the husband dies, she's free according to the law to be married to another. Verse 4, therefore, because of this, this illustration that he brings, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him, that is Christ, who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So in the previous chapter, living in grace, this grace that abounds much more means that we're dead to sin. That was chapter 6. Now we're being told in verse 4 of chapter 7 that we're dead to the law. And listen, we're not dead to the law so I can go out and live any kind of way that I want. Living in sin, living after the flesh, pursuing carnality. That's not what's being declared here. I have been set free from the law because the law will never make me righteous. The law is dead to me, so now I am free to be married or joined to another, to be joined to Jesus Christ. And being married to Jesus means that I will bear fruit, as we read in verse 4, fruit unto God as I abide in Christ, I'm in Christ, I walk with Christ, and I walk in the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, many of you are familiar with the first that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And it's interesting that as you look at that word fruit, it actually is singular. The fruit of the Spirit is love, which consists of, as you continue to read, joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness, so forth. Those things, joy, peace, long-suffering, and all of that is a result of, of the fruit of the Spirit, which is loving the Lord, loving the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so... We are told that as we have this new relationship, this new covenant, a covenant of love, 
a covenant of devotion to the Lord, coming in faith to the Lord. It means I walk in love. It doesn't mean I go out and do whatever I want in a carnal kind of way. I am free from all of that. And we saw in the previous chapter, and and now uh, as I am bound and married to a greater law, and that is the law of love. Later in Romans, Paul will say that love is the fulfillment of the law. You recall that it was the lawyer that came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? And, And it was, you know, the lawyer that said, you know, as Jesus said, you tell me. Love the Lord, all your, you know, the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus said, you're right. And the second is like it, that you should love your neighbors yourself. The law being summed up in love. And as you're walking in love with the Lord, my life is then producing fruit for him. And you might recall that Jesus, before he would go to the garden to be arrested, some of the last words that he would say to his disciples in John chapter 15, that I'm the vine and you are the branches and abide in me. And as you abide in me, you're going to bear forth fruit. You see that word abide means to be connected to, to stay close to. It's kind of like I have a fruit tree in my backyard. And as long as the branches are connected to the trunk of that tree, which, you know, is connected to the roots, that every summer I get fruit from that fruit tree. So if the branch gets cut off, there's no fruit that is produced. So for you and me as Christians, the Lord says, listen, I want you to be connected to me, stay close to me, abide in me. And he goes on and he says, not only abiding in me personally, you're going to bear forth fruit, but he says to his disciples that you abide in my word and abide in my love and you will bear much fruit and that fruit will remain and your joy is going to be full. So as you are married and abiding in Christ, the natural resort result is that you're going to produce good fruit. Now remember that that Paul made the case that last week that if you live after the flesh, you're going to produce fruit, but it's going to be rotten fruit. It's going to be dead fruit. And being married to the law will not produce the fruit the way that you will when you're truly married to the law of love in Jesus Christ. Listen, the law could never give me a righteous standing before God. But love for Jesus and faith in him will give me that righteous standing before him. And because I'm dead to the law and married to Jesus in this new relationship, my life brings forth righteous fruit. Love with its characteristics of joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and so forth. The world is looking for joy. We heard a lot about joy to the world during the holiday seasons, during Christmas. And people want that joy. And the Bible says that that joy is for you and for me who abide in Christ, that joy unspeakable. Even through the difficult circumstances and trials and tribulations that we go through, that we can have that joy unspeakable, just a sense of peace and calmness and confidence that the Lord is with me, his love remains, and that his promises are true. The world is looking for peace. Peace on earth, we heard a lot. And people want peace in their hearts, but you will not find it unless you're walking in love and abiding in Christ. And as you know him and enjoy him. And he gives us a peace that passes understanding. 
So these things, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, which consists of joy and peace and long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, these things don't make me righteous, but they are the results of righteousness that the Lord working that in me as I now have faith in Jesus. Do you see the difference? You see, when I was married to the law, I would struggle to keep it. And this chapter will be devoted to showing us that we will struggle in our flesh and in our own efforts, striving to keep the law. Paul will tell us of his experience here with the law. He uses the word I some 28 times in this chapter. Matter of fact, he uses I, me, myself over 40 times in the chapter. There's no mention of the Spirit. And this chapter could be called the me, myself, and I chapter. Paul has an I problem here. And as long as I am in my own flesh and my own energy and efforts trying to keep the law, I will struggle and I will fail. I will have an I problem in doing the law. But when I respond in love and abide in Christ, Christ living in my heart, living in me, then good fruit will be the result of my life. And that's why Paul writes in verse 4, you also have become dead to the law. And listen, Christian, when that finally sinks into our hearts and it becomes our own, great is that day to love the Lord, to walk with Him, to depend on Him, to walk in the Spirit will be the culmination of chapter 8. And what that does is two things. First of all, you stop being one that is prideful. Look at me. Look at what I do, how I dress, and what I do, how long I read my Bible, how many services I go to. You stop being a prune and prideful and looking down at others and discouraging others. Or the other side of the spectrum is this you start to become greatly discouraged yourself because you know that you fail and you struggle. And it can get so bad that I've seen Christians that will get so discouraged and frustrated and they say, why bother? I'm just a, you know, a spiritual failure. I'll just go home and forget about being in fellowship and being with other believers and reading my Bible and praying and serving the Lord. And you're on this roller coaster spiritually. And I remember those days early in my life. I remember going to church and I wanted to serve. And I remember, hey, I, I can hand out a bulletin. And they told me, you need to have a suit on or a coat and tie on. And I was just in my 20s. I'm sitting there going, I don't have a tie. I don't have a coat. I got jeans and T-shirts. That's about all that I have. And I remember being in a church where somebody would say, hey, you know, really you should cut your hair or really you should do this. And I remember going away feeling, yuck, I can never measure up. And it was so discouraging. And I pray for you and for me that the freedom that we have in Christ means that we love him and walk with him and enjoy him. And when you say, I'm free, married to another, Jesus Christ, and respond to him, you will do more than what the law demands. And you will bring forth fruit to God. So my prayer for all of us in this new year, 2019, is that we'll be a fruitful people in a good way, bearing fruit to the Lord, becoming fruitful because of the Lord. And what happens is 
is a believer becomes excited about their relationship with Jesus and they are edified and they are edifying others and lifting others up and not being judgmental and, and they're not discouraged about their walk with the Lord and you're free to live for Jesus and you're not bound up in legalism and the law and all of this and a church becomes excited about Jesus. And as we continue in verse 5, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So here Paul contrasts the law and grace. We now live in the newness of the Spirit, chapter 6, not in the oldness of the law, chapter 7. We've been delivered from the law. We're dead to the law. And it's interesting that Paul writes here, when we are in the flesh, verse 5 that we read, the sinful passions that were aroused by the law, Paul's going to explain this more fully in verses 7 through 14. And Paul, once again, is reminding us is that the law does not justify us. It does not make us right with God. It does not take us deeper with God or make us more holy. It only comes by living in this newness of life, in the newness of the Spirit. And that's what, what our Christianity is to be. Our Christianity is not just about constructing legalistic systems to where once again we end up being prideful, we boastful, and why aren't you like me, and why don't you do what I do, and look what I do, and look how I dress, and all of this. And, and it isn't that, or being all discouraged and judge you know, you know, yourself and, and towards others, but rather the Lord wants us and desires for us to live in this newness of the Spirit, moment by moment. And just day by day, just walking with the Lord, staying close to the Lord, being devoted to Him. You throw off the yoke of legalism. Remember Acts chapter 15. The Gentiles were coming to Christ and the church was growing and Paul was ministering to the Gentiles and he had gone through the area of Galatia and established those first churches. And then the Judaizers came in behind Paul and, and they said, you Gentile believers, that's all great that you have faith in Jesus Christ. But if you really want to be saved, if you really want to know that you're justified, you have to be circumcised and you have to keep the law of Moses. So Paul would write the book of Galatians to them and he would say much of what we see here in the book of Romans, that the law is not going to justify you. But Paul, he said, I marvel that you turn to a gospel to another. That's not the gospel. And then Paul, we know after that trip, Acts chapter 15 is what the Jerusalem council met. In other words, the church leaders, those apostles met together in Jerusalem and they needed to determine what it is that we're going to tell these new Gentile believers. So here comes Paul and Barnabas and the boys from Antioch. They come cruising up to Jerusalem. There's John and, and Peter and James there in Jerusalem. They meet together. There are those at that council, as you read Acts chapter 15, that were saying that we need to tell these Gentile believers that you must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And Peter stood up and he began to talk about how he first brought the gospel to the Gentiles. In the book of Acts, we see that as he brought the gospel 
gospel to Cornelius there and his household in Caesarea in Acts chapter 10. And the Holy Spirit fell upon them. They were saved. The, the, the you know, believers, the Jewish believers were astonished. This thing called the church is going to consist of both Gentiles and Jews, believers in Christ. But Peter would say something very interesting, very important. He said, concerning these new believers, these new Gentile believers, why do you test God by putting a yoke on their necks, on the necks of those disciples, which neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? He says, why are you putting this yoke on them? This yoke of what? Legalism. The law. They, they, we couldn't keep it. Why are we doing that? So you throw off the yoke of legalism, you are dead to the law, you walk in the spirit, and it's real. It's exciting and it's practical. And it's not that I have to. It's not that I got to. It's I get to. And I want to. Those of you who are married to your spouse, you love your spouse. You want to please them. You want to, to, to serve them. You want to make them happy. And we that are married, that love our spouses, we know that to be true. Well, when it comes to the Lord, being married to Christ, we want to please the Lord. We want to walk with him. We get to walk with him. It's not, the, oh, I guess I got to keep, you know, this righteousness or holiness or the law in my life. I want to do that. I want to please the Lord. I don't want to do anything to hurt him. Just as it is in our relationship with our spouse. In your relationship with the Lord, you desire to please the Lord. We want to please the Lord. And in chapter 8, it's going to tell us that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit in us, will enable us and motivate us to do that. And, and it's wonderful to walk in that newness of life. The desire to please the Lord, to have fruit unto God that's being produced, to serve the Lord, to enjoy Him. To get to know him more, that's the most important thing in our Christian lives. To just live in his love. In verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. Now this is important. As we go through this chapter of Romans, we should not think that, well, I'm free from the law. And, and I walk in that newness of life. I get it of the spirit. So the law is evil. The law is unholy. The law is bad. Paul says, don't go there. Don't think that. Don't think that the law is evil or bad. The law of God is holy and is perfect and it has a purpose. The problem is this. When religious men take the law and elevate it to a place that God never intended it to be. And that is the law is the way to be righteous before God. And now I have a holy standing before God because the law shows us that we sin. It reveals sin to us. The law is not sin, but the law shows our weakness and failure in keeping God's standard. And then Paul changes the pronoun. He gets personal. He says, I would not have known covetousness unless I knew that the law said I shall not covet. So Paul is saying, I had a personal problem, you know, with, with coveting. I, I, I sinned in this way. And he looked at the law and said, I fail in this area. Let's continue to read verse 8. But sin take an opportunity by all manner of evil desire. 
for apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin re revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taken occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it killed me. Verse 12, therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So the weakness of the law is not the law itself. It's us. It's you and me. We are with fault and not able to keep the commandment, the law. The law doesn't have faults. We do. Now, it's interesting that Paul says that I would not have known, you know, coveting unless I knew the law. And, and so Paul, I think, what was it that he was coveting? We know that when Paul was writing to the church at Philippi, he says, have no confidence in the flesh. If anyone could have had confidence in the flesh, it was me more so because I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was one that was blameless concerning the law. So here was Paul, that he was so zealous for his religion before he came to Christ. He was one that exceeded, you know, others, contemporaries in Judaism. He learned under Gamaliel, who was called the beauty of the law. You can read about Gamaliel, his address to the religious leaders there in the book of Acts and in the beginning of the church, you know, in chapter 4. And, and here is Paul that was tutored by Gamaliel. He studied the scrolls. He analyzed the scriptures. He did his best to keep the law, and he realized that he fell short. I covet. And I'm sure for a while he thought that I am blameless concerning the law. But then he realized that I'm guilty of breaking the 10th commandment of Exodus, that you shall not covet. So what was it that he was coveting? I think that perhaps the suggestion that I have is that he wanted the prestige. He wanted to be, you know, tops in Judaism. He wanted to be known as the smartest, the holiest, the greatest Pharisee. He wanted perhaps the power and the prominence. He wanted more. And he realized that I'm coveting. And it interests me that he says that, that it's one of the Ten Commandments, we shall not covet. And then Jesus warned his disciples in Luke chapter 12 that beware covetousness. And as I consider that, we live in a culture and in, in a nation where we can covet so easily. The culture in Madison Avenue screams at you and me that you are not happy unless you have what they have. Unless you have this thing, unless you have more, right? And in all my years of ministry, I've had a few people that were brokenhearted over, you know, I'm coveting. I've, you know, I'm being covetous, uh, and I am one that I want more, and very seldom does that happen. But yet it's so easily can it happen to you and to me. And we're told, don't do it, beware of it. We can covet. Even in ministry, I have to be careful of it. There's a real fine line. I want the kingdom to grow. I love to see that more people get saved here and people are growing in the word of God. But I don't want to carry that in to where I begin to covet. And, and that can happen with ministers. Hey, I want their building. I want more people. I want to be more popular. I, I, you know, I want this. I want that. Rather than learning to be content as the Lord tells us that we are to be.
So here he says that I coveted. I couldn't keep the law. Uh, I was a Pharisee. I studied the law. I studied the law. The law is not sin. It reveals what sin is. And that we're not holy and the law cannot make us holy. It's not the law's fault. It's us, our sinful nature. God never intended the law to make a man righteous. If righteousness, listen, could come by the law, then Christ died in vain. That's what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If the law can make you righteous, then Jesus didn't have to die on Calvary's cross. And Paul at one time thought that I just have to be zealous for the law. I've got it down. I've got it worked out. But as he studied the law, I realized how far I am from keeping it. I can't keep it. I can't live up to it. And Paul would say that the law killed him. It, it became to me death. And listen, when I see somebody who really has a pharisaical attitude, I know that it's indicative of someone who doesn't understand what Paul is describing clearing in this chapter their efforts and their focus is in their legalistic system and regulations rather than focusing on the Lord himself and spending time in the presence of the Lord those of you who are with us in our Isaiah study that we just got through finishing on Wednesday nights going through the book of Isaiah incredible study but in the first five chapters of Isaiah particularly in chapter 5, I believe just in chapter 5 alone, that Isaiah writes, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Woe to the nation. He's speaking truth, but he's coming down with a heavy hand. Woe to you. And then chapter 6, as many of you know, that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then Isaiah said, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips. You see, what happens to you and to me when we keep our focus not on the law, but on Jesus the Lord, spending time with him in his word, we realize how far short we come. And in a sense, we can say, woe's me, for I have unclean lips. I'm critical. I can be judgmental. And could it be that Isaiah, could it be that he realized, because I think that as he says that I, I speak of unclean lips, that he's not talking about speaking crude things, but perhaps, perhaps he had that tendency to be critical and judgmental of others, perhaps. And so the Lord sends an angel to take a coal off the altar, to catarize his lips, to stop the flow, to purge that which was coming out of his lips. You see, for you and for me, we believe that this is the word of God. And we believe the commandments and the precepts that are given to us and how we are to live our lives. That we are to pursue holiness and to pursue righteousness. And there are times where we talk to others. Parents, there are times where we have to lay down the law to our kids, right? And there are times where we talk with brothers and sisters that we bring correction and rebuke to them because we love them, right? Not because we're being prideful and critical and judgmental and tearing them down. But as we bring the word of God to them, we speak the truth in love. And we can say to that brother or sister, listen, don't continue in sin. Don't continue in doing wrong because it will hurt you. And it's a loving father that says, don't go that direction. It's going to bound you up and it's going to produce rotten fruit in your life. It's going to hurt you. And the Lord loves you and he wants you to be free to live for him. We can bring that word to others of repentance and turn to the Lord and encouragement. 
There's a big difference. And we can bring the law to others. You remember Moses. Moses is up on the mountain. He comes down. They said, Moses, man, put a veil over you. You're glowing. And he brings down the law. And as we bring the law to others, listen, the key is this. You be in the presence of the Lord. And your countenance is going to be something of the Lord. It's not snarling and grumping and griping at people and tearing them down. But it is saying, listen, that this is sin, but here's the hope. The Lord's calling you to turn to him. Repent, he loves you. We walk in that newness of life. We enjoy the Lord. And we have forgiveness when we fail. And then we can show that grace to others as we are living in that grace. Listen, be in the presence of the Lord. Abide in him. Walk with him and enjoy him. Oh, bring the law to others. But you bring it in the light of love of Jesus Christ and you bring the truth in love to others and you spend time in the presence of the Lord and you will somehow be glowing and people are going to receive you. Moses says, thus saith the Lord, you know, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord and the people are going, okay, Moses, all right. All right, we'll receive it. But if you come just pointing your finger at people and snarling and look at me and you need to compare yourself to me, that's not the right place to go. Go to the Lord. Turn to him. He loves you. Where there's forgiveness and restoration, where he desires to do work in you, he's doing a work in me. Brother, sister, love you. You know, that's the best thing that we can do. Give people the truth. We don't water down the truth, but we give it to them in the, the atmosphere of love to them as we live in the law of love. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these words given to us. And, Lord, that we're free from sin. We're free from the law. We're free to live for you, to walk in the Spirit. So, Lord, I thank you that we can come and, because we can't keep the law. But, Lord that we're free from it. We're forgiven. And I think about as we come to the communion table here in just a minute as we hold the elements, the communion table is for the believer. It's not just for whoever has joined Calvary Chapel. It's, it's for any believer. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. In this covenant of new covenant of love, that Jesus went to the cross, allowed his body to be broken, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. But for you who are here that you're not a Christian, that Jesus is your salvation. He is the way, not a way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And it's through the cross of Calvary, putting your faith and trust in him, he provided forgiveness. He cried out from the cross, it is finished. I did the work. I paid the price. Now we come in faith as we surrender. The Bible says repent, turn direction, and turn to him. He loves you. He said his love on you even before the world began. And he's calling you. And he says, come to me. Be forgiven, the greatest need of any man or any woman. And ask for forgiveness and surrender your life to Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. You can do that right now. Right where you are, sincerely in your heart, you can pray, Jesus, I come to you. 
a sinner. I confess it. And I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died for me on the cross. You rose again. You're alive. You're speaking to my heart. And I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. That this is now my gospel. And I thank you for bringing me here. I thank you for this newness of life that I get to live. A new beginning. And I want to know you and walk with you and enjoy you. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name. And listen, after communion...